your attention to the book of Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. We're turning and looking at Genesis chapter 9 verses 8 through 17 and continuation of our sermon series through the book of Genesis. Some truths that we've seen uh, recurring as we've looked in Genesis, particularly after the flood, is that we've seen that the flood was an act of decreation, uh, an unmaking of creation. God destroys the world to the point that it's covered with water and it's empty, formless, and void. But God remembered Noah and he caused the waters to recede. But now as Noah steps off of the ark into this new creation, he is given a covenant with Noah. God gives a covenant with Noah, and it's the nature of that covenant that we want to look at today. So if you have found your way to Genesis chapter 9, I would invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. Beginning in verse 8, the word of God says this, Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and all wildlife of the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark, I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds, and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all the living creatures on earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and every creature on the earth. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. Well, I had a friend in high school that was deathly afraid of bad weather. Anytime that there was a promise of stormy weather, he would check the forecast constantly. Anxiety would overcome him, and during bad weather, it would he, he would be terribly afraid. Well, this came on, actually, after the events of Hurricane Katrina, as the storm come upon the Gulf Coast. His experience during Hurricane Katrina caused great fear to come over him, and every strike of lightning, every clap of thunder, every stormy gust of wind would remind him of the extreme weather that he experienced during Hurricane Katrina. I think Noah experienced this kind of fear after leaving the ark. Now, perhaps Noah's fear was not of the weather, but of God who was sovereign over the weather. He was not fearful of the weather itself, but the God who was in control of it. And we have seen as we've walked through Genesis that Noah's immediate instinct upon disembarking from the ark is to offer sacrifice to God, to appease the wrath of God. Noah understands that God's wrath is against sin, and it was clearly in the mind of Noah that the same sin that warranted the flood of judgment resided in him as well. And so Noah offers a sacrifice to appease, atone for the wrath of God out of fear of God. 
And though we have seen as we've walked through Genesis that Noah is depicted as a second Adam of sorts in which he is over a new creation, this doesn't mean that mankind has a complete fresh start or a clean slate. No, the guilt of Adam is imputed to all men and the sinfulness that was rampant in the world before the flood resides in the heart of Noah as well. You see, humanity had become totally corrupt. We read back in Genesis 6 when the Lord saw the human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. God pledged to destroy the earth for he was deeply grieved by the iniquity that he saw in the hearts of men. And then on the other side of the flood, God says that the same thing is still true, that the intentions of the human heart are evil from youth onward. And so Genesis, as well as the entirety of Scripture, is clear that even before and after the flood, man is utterly sinful and totally depraved. And Noah rightly recognizes that he was numbered as a sinner with the rest of humanity. And so if humanity is just as sinful as it was before the flood, how do we know then that God won't flood the earth again? Perhaps this is the question that is in Noah's mind. Why wouldn't Noah think that this couldn't happen again? If, if humanity is still as sinful and the intentions of the human heart are just as evil as they were before, why wouldn't God flood the earth again? How could it be certain that there wouldn't be another flood, a, a daily deluge upon him and all of humanity? How do we know, dear friends, that today there will not be the same flood of judgment that will come upon the earth because of the iniquity of mankind? After all, there's been a lot of rain this winter. How do we know that that won't turn into a worldwide flood? The opposite, I think, could be asked as well. In fact, many atheists have raised the very question, if humanity is just as sinful and God is unchanging in his wrath against sin, why hasn't he flooded the earth with judgment? Why hasn't he destroyed the earth? If God exists and is truly wrathful against sin, why doesn't it seem that anything happens in the world, though it's sinful as it was before? When a person sins or when atrocities happen on a global scale, it seems that there is no judgment that comes immediately from the hand of God. I sin and God doesn't strike me with lightning. World wars occur, genocides are attempted, abortion is rampant, and God seems silent. Not only do mankind uh, commit these kinds of sins, but they also encourage others to commit these sins. We read in Romans 1 that those who practice such things deserve to die, and they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Yet God doesn't send immediate consequences remotely comparable to the catastrophic nature of the flood. And so how should we make sense of this biblically? Well, we, God's covenant with Noah helps us to understand these things because God enters covenant with Noah and through him all of humanity promising never again to destroy the world by a flood. There is a covenant that God enters into with Noah to show his mercy and his grace upon mankind. And so if you're following along and taking notes this morning, we really only have one point, but it's going to be a long one. It's this, God establishes a covenant of common grace with all men 
for the purpose of filling, fulfilling his promise of salvation. God establishes a covenant of common grace with all men for the ultimate purpose of fulfilling his promise of salvation. That's the purpose of the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah. And so as we embark upon our study of this covenant with Noah, we want to ask the question, what is a covenant? What is a covenant? A covenant is something that's used by God to create and administer a relationship between God and man. This is God's established means of initiating and creating relationships with his creatures above and beyond the creator-creature distinction. (coughs) God has a relationship with us based on our relationship to him as creator. But God institutes covenants to help us to know him better and to show himself more completely to us. You might think of some human examples of covenants. One example would be that of marriage. A wedding is a formal, binding, legal ceremony in which two people are joined together before God. You might think of a contract within a business that, uh, though this analogy is limited, there are negotiations in which one partner might negotiate with another to establish an agreed-upon terms of their relationship. So covenants then, in this way, establish a bond of commitment. They're guaranteed commitments in the context of Scripture when they're made with God. They're divinely sanctioned commitments, one author describes them. And another says this, a covenant made by God is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationships. In other, way, in other words, God imposes a covenant upon man to show and to demonstrate the relationship that God will have with them. He imposes the terms, and man must respond in receptivity and obedience. And we must also recognize that God is under no obligation to enter into this kind of covenant with man because of his superiority over us as our creator. But because he is our creator, and when he does initiate a covenant with mankind, there is an obligation upon us to obey There's no give and take as there would be in a business negotiation. There's no negotiating the terms of the covenant. Uh, There is nothing that we can do but receive it as an act of God's sovereign lordship over his creation and to enter this covenant relationship with God to enjoy him. But these covenants, though they are divinely imposed, are gracious in nature. God has voluntarily bound himself by covenants so that we may know his grace and goodness. We are completely dependent on God revealing himself to us through these covenants that we might know him more intimately and enjoy him more fully. And so when we think about covenants in Scripture, there are a couple different kinds of covenants. And on on a fundamental level, there are covenants that have one-way obligation. That is, God makes a promise and he imposes it upon himself to keep that promise. And then there are covenants that have two-way obligations or sanctions and conditions upon which the blessings are contingent. In other words, there's two-way obligation in that God says, I will bless you if you obey me and I will curse you if you disobey me. This was the kind of covenant that we saw in the garden with the covenant of works with Adam. 
Adam, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On the day that you do it, you will surely die. There is penalty, there is sanction imposed upon Adam. But there are also covenants of grace that are based upon promise. And the enjoyment of the blessings of these covenants depend solely on what blessings God chooses to promise. And the recipient does nothing to earn the blessing that God has promised. And so it's through these covenants, some covenants of work, some covenants of grace that God has revealed Himself. And it is through these covenants that God has structured the entirety of the Scriptures. The entire Bible is built upon these covenants that God progressively unfolds through them. A plan of redemption that God is going to save a people for Himself. You might think of some familiar covenants. God enters into a covenant with Abraham. He enters into a, uh, the covenant with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. He enters into a covenant with David in Second Samuel. There's all these covenants that God enters into. And today we're considering the Noahic covenant or the covenant that God enters into with Noah. And this is just one way in which God progressively reveals the way that He is going to save a people for Himself. And so we see, we read here for the first time in Scripture about this idea, excuse me, for the first time we read the actual words covenant. Now we read that word back in Genesis 6.18, but it's within the context of the flood, within the story of Noah, that we read the word covenant for the first time, even though it's not the first covenant in Scripture, God says in Genesis 6.18, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. And now, on the other side of the flood, God gives a full expression of that covenant that He introduced back in chapter 6. The details of this covenant are given now that the floodwaters have subsided. And we read there in verse 8, God said... To Noah and his sons with him, understand, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you. God is establishing his covenant. God is imposing, creating, developing, initiating this covenant with Noah. He says there in verse 9, he will establish his covenant. He says it on the other side of the account in verse 17, I will establish my covenants. This is his covenant covenant and he is creating the uh, obligations and the responsibilities the terms of the covenant it is his covenant verse 9 says it also says that in verse 11 i will establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters there will never again be a flood to destroy the earth And this covenant that God is making and imposing terms upon creation is His. It is sovereignly administered and fulfilled by His power. And in it, He makes promises of grace to mankind. And through it, He reveals His own goodness of character and His graciousness in His purposes. This is God's covenant with Noah. And He makes it now on the other side of the flood 
We have read through Genesis 7 and in Genesis 8 about a global, cataclysmic, catastrophic flood in which God destroyed all of mankind because of the iniquity that was upon the earth. It says in Genesis 7 verse 11, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open, the floodgates of the sky were opened, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. In Genesis 7 verse 18, it says the water surged and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Then the water surged even higher on the earth and all the high mountains under the whole earth were covered. The mountains were covered as the water surged above them more than 20 feet. And it goes on to tell us that every creature under the sun that drew the breath of life perished in the flood as God undid, unraveled creation under the feet and under the ark of Noah. And yet, after this, the Spirit of God dries the waters. The Spirit of God reestablishes life on earth as He did in Genesis 1. And now Noah emerges from the ark with God's breath of life in him just as Adam emerges from the dust of the earth showing us that Adam, excuse me, Noah is a new kind of Adam. And God establishes His covenant with Noah. You see, like Adam, Noah is depicted as a federal head of this covenant. That term federal head just means representative. He's the representative of the covenant. And so all humanity is connected with Noah and therefore connected to this covenant. This covenant with Noah has all of creation in view. One author says this, covenants function as the legal basis upon which God interacts with man in a given kingdom. And so here in Genesis chapter 9, the kingdom that is in view is that of the entirety of creation. All of the earth and every creature in it is in view with this creation. That's why we read there that it's not just Noah, and it's not just Noah's sons or his children after them, but every creature on the earth, it says in verse 17, is under this creation. This is the covenant that governs all of creation, and in particular, all of humanity. And we read in verse 11 that it is a covenant of common grace. It is a covenant of preservation. Look with me there at verse 11. I will establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. God is revealing now to Noah what he has already determined and purposed within his own heart by the counsel of his will to accomplish. We read back in Genesis chapter 8, God uh, speaks within himself and he says there in verse 21, I will never again uh, curse the ground because of the human beings because, excuse me, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from the youth onward and I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. And so this covenant deals with all of creation and it is an overflow of God's purpose in the present creation. But this covenant is not redemptive. This is an act of God's common grace to preserve his creation for his purposes. No one is saved by the covenant made with Noah. There's no offer of saving grace or eternal life in this covenant. This is a covenant of God's promise regarding how he will relate to his creatures after the flood. This covenant is very gracious, 
But it is not a covenant of grace, nor is it the covenant of grace. It is a covenant of common grace in which God preserves His creation and acts in kindness and mercy towards His creatures. And though there are sanctions, obligations, requirements upon mankind after this covenant is instituted to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, those sorts of things we talked about last week, The promise of God to sustain and preserve His creation is not dependent upon the obedience of mankind. God is promising this out of His graciousness, out of His mercy. And so we might consider some of the blessings of this covenant. What promises does God make to mankind? Well, first, as we've already mentioned, this is a covenant of preservation. He is never again going to destroy the world by a flood. Never again is he going to curse the earth as he did. God has already shown his power and willingness to preserve life in this way by saving Noah and his family. He said, I will make my covenant with you, Noah, in verse chapter 6, verse 18. And now he saved Noah to the other side of the flood and institutes this covenant with him. This is a covenant of preservation. And in this covenant, God also promises stability. Think with me again back to chapter 8, verse 22. God says there, as long as the earth endures, there will be uh, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not cease. God is providentially sustaining and upholding the stability of his creation. Life in general will continue in predictable cycles. Man will not need to live in fear of a global flood any longer. Sun will shine and rain will fall on the just and unjust as long as the earth endures. God is promising to preserve his creation in this way. There is the blessing of multiplication. We saw that last week as God blesses Noah and his sons and tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They're to propagate life. They're to conceive and bear children within the context of marriage. And these offspring will then marry and bear other children themselves. And in this way, humanity will multiply and spread over the face of the earth to the glory of God. They're to sustain, God is going to sustain their life. That's one blessing given there in the Noahic covenant that not only are they now to eat of the green plants and of the fruit of the field, but they're also to eat and partake of the animals. God has given this to them for food to sustain their life. But God has also promised the blessing of preserving life. He institutes a command against murder. And so we see here that human societies together under the Noahic covenant have the responsibility of preserving both life and the family. And so we see in the Noahic covenant all of these blessings and the disposition of God's goodness and patience towards mankind. He is going to forbear judgment. Though they deserve it, he is going to withhold judgment because he knows their their hearts are evil from youth onward. And God says this is his permanent covenant. This is the covenant that will last all the way until the end of the earth. Now this doesn't imply some eternality of this covenant in the sense that God is promising never to destroy the world at all. 
No, He's promising this permanent covenant as long as the earth endures. This doesn't mean that there's not going to be a final judgment. In fact, Peter warns us of this in Second Peter. There were false teachers that were saying, look, the earth has continued as it has since the very beginning of time. Everything's going to continue on. There's no final judgment for you to worry about. But Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 5, they deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. And through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so there is a coming judgment, but it is not one of water, but one of fire. And so the Lord's promise in the Noahic covenant wasn't that God didn't care about sin anymore, nor was it that there wouldn't be a cataclysmic judgment for sin, but rather that as long as the earth endured, there would no longer be a flood to wipe out the earth. As long as the earth endures, as long as we have life on this planet as we know it, until the final day of judgment comes, God is promising to preserve his his creation but the question is why if man is sinful and deserving of judgment why does God make this covenant with Noah the purpose of this covenant is that it creates a stable platform upon which God's plan of salvation can play out You see, man is definitely deserving of justice. John Calvin says that man is deserving of a daily deluge, a daily cataclysmic flood, daily upon the earth. That's what we are deserving of. Our intentions are evil continually. We are violent as we are violent. And as it says in Genesis 6, uh, iniquity and wickedness fill the earth and nothing has changed changed man is comprehensively and totally depraved deserving of judgment and unable to merit salvation for themselves but if God keeps judging sin immediately and completely as it deserves there will be no earth and no humanity and judgment is all there will ever be therefore God makes a covenant with Noah to say that he is going to be forbearing and patient and he is going to give space that his redemptive purposes might be fulfilled and what redemptive purposes are those well let's go back to Genesis 3:15 back in Genesis 3 after the fall as God pronounces a curse upon Satan through the serpent he says I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he will strike your head and you will strike his hill this is the promise that the godly line has been hoping in this is the promise that as Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden they are hoping that God is going to fulfill through Eve this is the promise that as Abel offers his sacrifice in Genesis 4 he is hoping that God is going to provide the seed that is going to deliver his people once from all from the hostility of the serpent this is uh, this is the line of Seth this is the promise that the line of Seth in Genesis 5 is hoping in this is the reason that Enoch walked with God and was taken because he believed in the promises of God this is the reason that Lamech named his son Noah hoping that this was the seed that was going to bring relief from the curse of the ground that man knows 
And this is the reason that Noah built an ark, believing in the promises of God that he was going to one day, through his offspring, provide a Savior. You see, God promised to deliver man from the effects and curse of sin and end once for all the hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. One author says the Noahic covenant stabilizes that cursed world so that redemptive history can play out and God's promises can be fulfilled. God has given His common grace. He has forbeared His judgment. He has uh, so that He might give space for eternal salvation in the seed of the woman, the offspring, that is Christ Jesus. One author says it this way, Noah's covenant, therefore, is not a covenant of salvation or eternal life. The success or failure of Noah and mankind in obedience to these commands will neither bring them eternal life nor will it bring them eternal death. Man is already condemned in Adam. And the only escape known at that time was God's promise concerning the offspring of Eve that would crush the serpent's head. Though this covenant does not offer eternal life of any kind, it nevertheless served and serves the purpose of promoting the fulfillment of that greater promise of salvation. The Noahic covenant subserves the progress of God's promise of salvation and that its new commission of reproduction and expansion will be a means whereby the seed of Eve can be born. God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth because one day there's going to be one that is raised up that will end the hostility, that will end sin itself and will bring salvation to the seed of the woman. And this isn't just Jesus Christ. No, remember back in Genesis 3.15 that there is a, a host of seed. There is one seed that is raised up. There is the one Christ Jesus. He's the Messiah, the Savior. But there is an innumerable seed, the seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent. And so first it's the Lord Jesus, but all of His people with Him. And so all of those promises of God of salvation and redemption are yes and amen in Christ Jesus and in Him alone. You see, the promise of Genesis 3.15 is that there will be an offspring of the woman who are children of the promise, who believe in God and His Word down through the ages. The covenant with Noah ensures that God will have a people, a seed of the woman in every generation. The Noahic covenant, brothers and sisters, was instituted with Noah so that people like you and I might come to saving faith in Christ Jesus. That God would give us space to receive and to believe the gospel. That we might not be immediately judged and condemned and destroyed for the sin that deserves that destruction. We deserve judgment from the moment of our birth as children of Adam, but the Noahic covenant gives us opportunity to hear and believe the gospel. God shows his forbearance and does not immediately judge our sin as it deserves that we might be saved. This is the good news. This is the grace of the Noahic covenant. It serves that uh, it serves so that the great gospel promise that God will save a people for himself will be fulfilled in the seed of the woman. You see, here in Noah's day, that seed had not yet come, nor had the fullness of that seed been saved. And if mankind had been destroyed, the first gospel promise would have failed. And so this covenant is made in pursuit of the redemption of man that was revealed there in Genesis 
3. Oh, brothers and sisters, let's praise God for the grace of this covenant. For it is through the Noahic covenant, through His preservation of His creation, that we are able to come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is because God sustained His world that Jesus in the fullness of time was able to come to begin with because the world was still here, because God was withholding His wrath that it deserves. And so how do we know that God is going to continue to fulfill this promise? Well, he gives us a sign in verse 12. In verse 12, the scripture says, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and and the earth. Whenever I form clouds of the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the creatures and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. How do we know that God will keep his promise? Because he gave us a sign. And this is typical of covenants in the Scripture. There are typically signs regarding the covenants that God makes. You might think of the Abrahamic covenant. God gives circumcision there as a sign. You might think of the new covenant, the covenant of grace that we have received in Christ Jesus. He has given us signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper to point us to God's grace. And so here in the Noahic covenant, there is the sign of the rainbow, the bow in the clouds. And when the sky is filled with clouds, when rain comes upon the earth, and Noah and all his offspring think for a moment, perhaps God is going to destroy us again. They can look and see the rainbow in the clouds and the promise of God that he is going to preserve his creation until his redemptive purposes are fulfilled. This rainbow is significant I think because it symbolizes a divine arch that is upholding the waters in the sky that the heavens are being held up so that there might not be a great deluge when storms rage and sun shines through the rainbow reassures us as sinners of God's forbearance that arch is symbolically holding back the wrath of God that you and I deserve it is a sign for us, and we, when we see it, we think of God's covenant faithfulness and His grace and compassion upon us. God's mercies are ever new. But more than that, brothers and sisters, and, I, and more specifically to the text, the sign is less a sign for you and I, but it is a sign for God Himself. It says there in verse 14 and in verse 16 that God will see it. When clouds form of the earth and when waters are pouring upon the earth, God will see the rainbow and He will uh, be reminded of His covenant with creation. Now God doesn't need reminding as if He has forgotten something, but it is a, a constant sign to humanity of God's remembrance of His faithfulness to them. When we see it, we are to say there is the sign that God set for Himself to see. God looks upon the same rainbow that we see in the sky and remembers His commitment of grace to the earth to sustain it and protect it until the end of the age despite its deserving of judgment. And God is so committed, brothers and sisters, to sustaining His creation that when John sees the vision of the throne room in Revelation chapter 4, what do we see surrounding the throne 
It is none other than a rainbow. We read there in Revelation 4, Immediately I was in the Spirit, John says, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. And the one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. John shows us all the way at the end of Revelation, bookending the Scriptures, that God is committed to sustaining and governing His creation in this way. Why? So that His redemptive purposes might be fulfilled. We read in, Gen- in Revelation 4 that there's a rainbow around the throne and all the elders and the angels cry out, Worthy are you because you've created the world, O Lord. But then in Revelation chapter 5, we see this vision of a, a lamb slain before the foundation of the world, and the lamb is worthy to open the scroll. The lamb is worthy because he calls for himself and ransoms the people of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. You see the rainbow there is still connected not only to the covenant of common grace, but to God's redemptive grace. This rainbow symbolizes in the very throne room of God that he is saving a people of every tongue, tribe, and nation for himself until the end of the age this is the work of God in creation and this is what he promises in the Noahic covenant and so dear Christian as we draw to a close let us consider the faithfulness of God to us let us consider the comfort that this brings as we consider the instability that we see in the world, as we think of the sin that is in the world and the judgment that it deserves. We see all of this, but know that God has promised to sustain the world and that in that, all of His promises are going to be fulfilled and complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can know that for all the judgment that this world deserves that will come by fire on the last day, we, because of God's promises to us in Christ Jesus, will be safe and secure in Him. He will be our ark of salvation and our refuge from the flame that we might endure and persevere to the end to be a part of the new creation that He has for us in Christ Jesus. We can know at all times that God will not destroy the earth until He has fulfilled every last promise to His people. No matter what happens in our lives, brothers and sisters, God's Word is going to be fulfilled. This is the promise of the new covenant. Oh, let this encourage our faith, especially in the new covenant promise of salvation. Let the rainbow that we see in the sky remind us that God has promised to secure us and save us, not by the works of our hands, but by the Lord Jesus Christ on the last day. He will keep us. He will preserve us. He will sustain us. And let us consider the sign of that new covenant. Brothers and sisters, in a few moments, we're going to come to the Lord's Supper together. And this is a sign. This is a symbol. This is just like the rainbow reminds us of God's goodness and covenant grace and sustaining His creation. So the Lord's Supper is a sign to us to remind us of God's saving grace in the Lord Jesus. Isn't that what He says in Luke twenty-two twenty? 20? He took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. And so this is an opportunity for us to be reminded of the surety of God's promise and saving grace to us in Christ Jesus. And we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes when He returns to call His people to Himself and save us from the fiery judgment to come. But dear Christian, as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, this is also a reminder for us that our 
worth, worthiness to come to the table is not found in the works of our own hands or in our obedience or in our goodness, but in the goodness and compassion of God through His saving grace in our lives through the Lord Jesus Christ. When our conscience testifies against us and we're reminded of our guilt and our deserving of God's wrath, when we like Noah, are, we know that the same sin that was in Noah and in the world before him and every person afterward, that our hearts are evil from our youth onward and that we're unworthy to approach the throne of God, we look to the Lord's Supper and we say, I come with empty hands to receive the blood of Christ shed for me. I come to receive the body of Christ given for me, knowing that it is enough to stay the wrath of God and save me in the end. When we feel that we certainly may fall under God's wrath and condemnation again, we are reminded in the Lord's Supper, brothers and sisters, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The wounds of Jesus bear testimony that our sin is nailed to the cross and we bear them no more. And so as we eat and as we drink the bread and the cup, we are reminded that the cross of Jesus Christ is enough for us to stay the wrath of God against us. But if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus in that way, and you've never considered the wrath of God in this way, Every time it rains and every time you see a rainbow, this is a sign of God's mercy to you. You are under God's wrath. You are under His just condemnation. You are worthy of being immediately destroyed, drowned, and swept away in a flood of judgment. But God has placed a rainbow in the clouds to show you that this is a sign of His forbearance. That He is showing mercy for a span of time that sinners such as you might come to faith and repentance in Christ Jesus. But that rainbow can't save you, nor can the works of your hands, nor anything that you can offer God of your own merits God's patience will not save you only the blood of the Lord Jesus will save you repent and believe in the gospel and believe it or not God gave you a sign that that will surely come to pass Jesus in speaking to the Pharisees speaks of the sign of Jonah he speaks of the sign of his resurrection that after three days in the ground he will be raised up again you see, the Lord Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and He went to the cross of Calvary to die for our sins. And as He died on the cross, He is placed in the ground and He was buried for three days. But God, in power to vindicate the life and death of Jesus as an, as an effective atonement for the sins of humanity, He raised Him up from the grave as a sign that this is what God accepts and that God alone accepts for redemption. And so if you will repent of your sins, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, in His righteousness and in His blood, you will be saved from the wrath to come. Oh, the grace of God and the Noahic covenant, which points us to the greater grace and the covenant of grace in Christ Jesus that God is sustaining and keeping the human race and keeping His creation until Christ came and until the full number of the seed of the woman are secured in Him. Let's go to Him in prayer. Lord, we thank You for the promise of the Gospel in Genesis 3.15. We thank You uh, that You promised from the very beginning of human iniquity that there would be a Savior 
that there would be one who would rise up and crush the hostility, who would end the curse and bring relief for us. Father, we thank you for Christ Jesus. We thank you that there is an innumerable seed, his offspring, the seed of the woman down through the ages. Father, we thank you that through faith in Christ, we can be numbered among the elect. Father, we pray that you would help us this morning to live in light of that, to find comfort, to find patience, to find help, to find trust in you. Father, help us to look to you and know that you are forbearing the judgment that our sins deserve because it is poured out on Christ Jesus. And Father, for the one who does not know Christ, I pray that they would look and see that there is a sign screaming to them, that there is judgment coming, but God is being patient and forbearing and showing mercy in this time that sinners might come to repentance. Lord, we pray that your spirit will grant it in Jesus' name. Amen.